Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the question of whether the important lessons from the January 6th committee hearings will be learned and acted on, since it is far more important to fix the vulnerabilities of our fragile electoral system that Trump exploited all the way up to the insurrection than to focus on the insurrection itself, which was just the backup plan and Trump's desperate last-ditch attempt to stay in power. Joining us to address the structural weaknesses of American democracy that make it vulnerable to dictatorial coups is Aziz Huck, a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He is a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. We will discuss his article at Politico, The Criminal Referrals Are Not Enough. The January 6th Committee is warning that American democracy remains deeply fragile. Then we'll examine the record $858 billion defense budget the 2023 NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, soon to reach the president's desk, which just the increase over last year's level of $80 billion alone is higher than the entire military budgets of almost every country in the world, including major powers like Germany, Japan, France, and the UK. Joining us is William Hartung, a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose books include Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. We will discuss his latest article, At Responsible Statecraft, New Spending Bill Squanders Billions on Dysfunctional Weapons Programs. Then finally, we will speak with Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest article is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our non-profit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. And he has an article at Politico, The Criminal Referrals Are Not Enough. The January 6th Committee is warning that American democracy remains deeply fragile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aziz Huck. Thanks for having me, Ian. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And your article at Politico, Aziz, concludes saying that the January 6th committee has plausibly broken through to a broader public. It would be a profound shame if the committee's vital work was misunderstood as a howl for revenge rather than the more profound call for democratic renewal that it truly is. So are you suggesting, Aziz, that maybe the committee didn't make the the more important point? I think the committee has made the the really vital point at at several moments in its 10 hearings that uh, the efforts by former President Trump to thwart the peaceful transition of power exploited numerous institutional weaknesses in the apparatus of our democracy. And the committee has been very clear that uh, it's really important Uh, for both states and Congress to shore up those weaknesses. I I think that the the focus on the criminal referrals yesterday was understandable because those are dramatic uh, and they are newsworthy uh, and in many cases, I'm sure, warranted. Uh, and, And really, my point was not to blame the committee or to say that they have gone astray, but rather to underscore a message uh, that they themselves have been uh, propounding uh, at a moment where it risks being drowned out by something more dramatic. So in other words, your argument, just to try and encapsulate it, is that what happened prior to the January 6th insurrection is really something that we should be focused on. And that goes back quite a way into the election itself. And I think it goes back even prior to the election and the efforts by the former president uh, through 2020 to delegitimate any outcome that was not favorable to him. I think that's absolutely right. I think the committee itself has tried to underscore time and again that we should not focus exclusively on the events of January the 6th. The January 6th violence was instigated or catalyzed by the former president because a series of other efforts to exploit institutional weaknesses had failed, because he was unable to suborn a state election administrator into lying on his behalf, because the fake slates of presidential electors had not been uh, recognized. Uh, because the Justice Department had not uh, been uh, turned toward his project of asserting uh, election fraud. All of the weaknesses that enabled those earlier pre-January 6 efforts, all of those institutional weaknesses still exist. And whatever the justifications are for criminal charges against Trump or the other uh, individuals such as John Eastman who were identified in the hearing yesterday, those justifications don't take away the importance of making durable fixes to our democratic institutions. So in other words, January the 6th was Trump's backup plan. It was his last-ditch resort. Absolutely. The record compiled by the committee shows that the January 6th protest slash 
march to the Capitol was conceived by Trump on December the 18th after a lengthy meeting with his political ally, political aides and legal counsel in the White House, where he aired a series of proposals for refusing to recognize uh, various states' uh, 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 results, such as Arizona, uh, Michigan, and Georgia. And it was because these uh, efforts at legal chicanery were turned aside by uh, these lawyers and political aides that he tweeted the idea of a march to the Capitol on January 6th. So the, the march to the Capitol was a, a last-ditch attempt to get around the election results where the earlier legal legalized, I shouldn't say legal, uh, uh, machinations had been rebuffed, uh, even by Trump's own uh, staff and allies. And even on the day itself, he, he what a part of plan B was, of course, to get Vice President Pence to go along with not certifying the election results. So how would you describe that? Plan C? Well, I think that there were a couple... I, I think there were a couple of different things that could have happened on January the 6th that would have served Trump's interests. I think the first is the one that you identify, which is that Trump uh, Trump was hoping that Pence would buckle under the pressure of impending violence and decline to uh, fulfill the purely ministerial responsibility that he has as vice president with respect to the counting a presidential elected ballots, right? He was hoping effectively to instrumentalize Trump, uh, Pence into uh, delaying or even calling the election for him. Uh, the second and even more sinister possibility is that had the insurrectionists reached Pence and had Pence, and I, I want to be very clear that I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting or advocating any kind of harm to Pence, but had the insurrectionists reached Pence and mortally wounded him, the role of the vice president would then have been filled by somebody that Trump would have selected. And that person presumably would be selected on the basis of being willing to do what uh, Trump asked in respect to the presidential elector count. So there's there's absolutely the scenario that you described, but there is an even more sinister, more uh, profoundly morally troubling scenario that we can play out as potentially happening that, or, or it could have potentially happened that day. But just to take the one that happened as opposed to the one that could have happened, which is to hang Mike Pence, the one that could have happened, had Pence agreed to basically not certify the Biden election, and I don't know what he could have said or done. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what Eastman and company were trying to tell Pence to do. So fill us in on that. What were they thinking? Because it seemed sort of desperate and somewhat harebrained. Eastman identified in December meeting two options for Pence. And to be clear, Pence turned, or Pence's lawyers, uh, turned both of them down. So the first option was that Pence would open the envelopes with the uh, presidential slate, say, uh, there are competing slates, and I'm going to send them back to uh, Arizona, Wisconsin, 
uh, Georgia, etc., for resolution of the competing state slates, which would at least have delayed the election and created uncertainty about which slates counted. Now, to be clear, the competing slates uh, of the competing Republican slates in those places were utterly fraudulent, right? So that would have been a, a delaying tactic that would have created a window of time to push through those fraudulent slates of elections. That's one possibility. Uh, the second uh, uh, possibility is that he simply could have opened the envelopes and said, I recognize the Republican, but not the Democratic slate of uh, electors from Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Georgia, and Arizona. And that itself uh, would have triggered uh, a Trump victory. I, I think that, that essentially... Uh, on that second uh, theory that Eastman propounded, the vice president would have the power to declare by opening the envelopes who had won the election. Well, what is particularly alarming about this, as crazy as that was back then, I think on what, January the 5th, it still got life because Eastman's independent state legislature theory He's now part of an amicus brief before the Supreme Court, along with Leonard Leo's dark money groups, to persuade the Supreme Court to take up this fringe independent state legislator theory. And at least three of the uh, Supreme Court's ultra-right-wing justices are sympathetic to it. So you're warning that it's the frailty of our election mechanisms that should be addressed, and that should be the legacy of January the 6th Committee, is... Absolutely. absolutely clear and present danger. Absolutely. And, and just to flesh out what you just said, Ian, the Supreme Court case is about federal legislative elections. At least formally, it is not about presidential elections. But were the court to say that the text of the Constitution should be read to grant state legislatures essentially power to make and apply rules, independent of state administrators or state courts in federal legislative elections, one can imagine that opening the door to a great deal of mischievous uh, state legislative action, both with respect to congressional elections and by extension with respect to presidential elections. So for example, uh, a legislator in Arizona has already suggested and proposed a bill whereby the Arizona legislature could revoke a slate, of a slate of presidential electors that are identified through the ordinary ballot counting process and replace them with a slate of presidential electors that the legislature desired. Uh, that's, a, that's the kind of logical extension of the uh, idea of an independent state legislature that Eastman was pushing in the uh, context of December 2020. It, it's not plainly on the table in the Supreme Court case, but it's pretty close. Um, and the, the proximity between those two ideas should alert us to, and this is something that I think you just brought out, the way that these ideas are circulating through larger networks on the political world, including, uh, as you say, organizations associated with uh, Leonard Leo. Well, it did happen in the sense that uh, Senator Ron Johnson was given a, a slate of fake electors and urged to deliver them. It didn't happen, but it came close, didn't it? In fact, there were seven states in which 
uh, groups of private citizens assembled, uh, purporting to be uh, a group of presidential electors, uh, voted to recognize uh, Trump as the victor in their state and transmitted their uh, uh, quote-unquote slate to the U.S. archivist. In only one of those seven states in Georgia has there been any uh, move by state prosecutors to uh, prosecute those individuals. Uh, in, in my view, and actually in the view of the January 6th committee, the transmission of those statements to the U.S. Archi- archivist constitutes a false statement made to a U.S. official that is uh, a federal crime. Uh, and indeed, I think not enough attention has gone so far to the fact that in addition to the three offenses that were widely expected from uh, the January 6th Commission Committee uh, in terms of referrals, uh, there was a fourth. And the fourth was making false statements uh, to a federal official. And it centers on the creation of the presidential elector slate. So I think that that's a, it's actually a very important referral that brings attention to an issue, these, these uh, fake elector slates. Uh, that I think has dropped out of public consciousness. And I think that the committee has done a, uh, an important service uh, drawing back to the surface. So Aziz Huck, just in the last couple of minutes, then let's talk about what at least is being done to address the frailty of our electoral system that Trump tried to exploit prior to January the 6th. And January the 6th, the insurrection itself was kind of a last-ditch effort on his part, having failed but came close to undermining and even reversing the will of the people. Let's talk about what Schumer and McConnell have agreed to at the U.S. Senate in terms of fixing, or I don't extent to which they are going to fix, the Electoral Count Act. What do you know about uh, what they're proposing? Well, so the, 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 um, budget rep- the budget bill that was dropped today has provisions in it that would eliminate certain uncertainties in uh, an 1887 statute called the Electoral Count Act. This was a statute that was introduced after uh, the contested election, I believe, of 1886, although I'm not sure about that, uh, it, uh, in order to clarify the, the, the mechanics whereby the uh, slates of electors would be communicated to Congress and then that would be transmitted or translated into a result. Some of the uh, provisions in the uh, the bill that's now before uh, the House and the Senate that seems likely to pass, although I understand that Kevin McCarthy is resisting that, uh, would clarify that the role of the vice president is purely ministerial. Uh, other sets of rules would uh, change the uh, conditions under which a representative could to a slate. Uh, right now, the rule is a single representative can make an objection. Uh, the bill would raise that. I, I believe it's to um, less than a majority, although I'm not uh, certain of that. Uh, and then there would be uh, a mechanism uh, allowing for appeals to federal court. Um, so I, this is clearly better than what now exists. Um, I have reservations about the uh, mechanism uh, which allows appeals to uh, a federal court, largely because I'm not convinced that uh, federal courts, especially the Supreme Court uh, these days, uh, are actors that are entirely free of the partisan sphere. Uh, But 
this is certainly an improvement on uh, the status quo. Uh, what it doesn't do, though, is important. It, it doesn't address any of the weaknesses that we've seen at the level of the states, particularly around state election administration, uh, particularly around these uh, FAPs, uh, uh, slates of presidential electors, and it doesn't address at all the, the the problem of people who are either election deniers or who were in some fashion actively involved in the effort to prevent the peaceful transition of power back in 2020 to 2021, running for and holding federal office. Um, there. There is in the Constitution a mechanism for preventing those people, at least some of those people, from holding office in uh, the 14th Amendment. Uh, but it's a mechanism that doesn't apply itself. It needs some sort of a mechanism through which, or a structure through which it can be applied. I and others have argued for a law that would uh, regularize that, make it predictable, and prevent abuses. Uh, but we don't see that on the table, and that's something that's very important, but that's missing from the uh, the budget uh, reconciliation measure that's uh, before Congress now. Well, Aziz Haq, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Aziz Haq, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. And he has an article of Politico, The Criminal Referrals Are Not Enough. The January 6th Committee is Warning That American Democracy Remains Deeply Fragile. We're going to take a restation break and back examining the record $858 billion defense budget, which just the increase over last year's level of $80 billion alone is higher than the entire military budgets of almost every country in the world, including major powers like Germany, Japan, France, and the UK. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Hartung, who is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's the author of a number of books, including Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, New Spending Bill Squanders Billions on Dysfunctional Weapons Programs. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Hartung. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And again, we are seeing the National Defense Authorization Act as the most extraordinary conduit for pork and the treasure of the nation being poured in to the Pentagon, $858 billion. A lot of it, uh, as you point out in your article, for weapons that nobody wants and maybe they don't work. It just goes on and on. And as you've pointed out, the increase, just the increase over last year of $80 billion 
is higher than the entire military budget of almost every country in the world, including major powers like Germany, Japan, France, and the United Kingdom, not to mention, of course, uh, Russia as well. So what's going on? This is not a new story. I know we've talked about this in the past, Bill, but is this zombie politics we're talking about here? Is there nothing that can stop this enormous waste of our treasures going into the destruction and death as opposed into improving the quality of life? I think it can be stopped, but the question is, how long will it take? We're in a very difficult moment. Uh, I think the Ukraine war, whatever you think about army Ukraine, has created a larger narrative about dangerous world, the need to expand the military industrial complex, compounded with uh, exaggerated uh, arguments about the military threat from China, and then, of course, pork barrel politics. Um, a lot of the things that Congress added were things in the districts of key members, uh, more combat ships, more F-35s. Uh, now they want to triple the uh, Army's ability to make ammunition, maybe build new factories. And the main beneficiaries are among top five, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics, Raytheon, et cetera. So, uh, it's it's glory days for the uh, weapons industry, and of course they are trying to wrap themselves in the flag and say they're the arsenal of democracy because of their arming of Ukraine. But of course they're also arming despots like the Saudi regime, which has killed thousands and and uh, indirectly hundreds of thousands in Yemen, Egyptian dictatorship, and others. So uh, it's like you know most days of the week they're the arsenal of autocracy, and then. On the other day, they're arming Ukraine, which at least is, you know, using it to defend itself. But the $858 billion in this year's National Defense Authorization Act that's being voted on is far more, as you point out in your article, at the Responsible Statecraft Bill, is far more than the levels reached at the height of the Korean or the Vietnam Wars or the peak of the Cold War when we had a real enemy that could have wiped us all out, every city out, in 30 minutes. And we still have that threat, as it happens. We got a Russian arsenal and a Chinese arsenal aimed at us. So that hasn't changed. Maybe we're psychologically disarmed, but we're not physically disarmed. But even the $858 billion that we're talking about is not really the accurate number, is it? Because the Defense Department over the years has managed to get rid of a number of its, you know, parts of its overall defense spending to, in order to reduce the amount that appears that's being spent on defense. They split off a whole bunch of agencies, like the Department of Energy is the nuclear weapons, which is obviously a part of defense. The Department of Transportation has the Coast Guard. All the Veterans Affairs, which is obviously a part of the military, has also been spun off into a separate department. So what do you think the real defense budget is above the 858? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's probably, if you count Pentagon budget and all the other military-related agencies, we're talking 1.3 to 1.4 trillion. And of course, the 50 billion that's uh, authorized or about to be authorized for military aid to Ukraine is also separate from the $858 billion. So that's another treasure trove for the contractors. 
So this is what's called military Keynesianism, right? And it's economists have made it clear that it's about the least efficient way to create employment. And yet the defense budget is sold by politicians as a jobs program. Yeah, it's, it's all political. Uh, because of the bias against public investment, uh, the Pentagon is the only kind of officially approved way to pump government money into the economy in a big way. Uh, so even though you get more jobs from green energy or infrastructure or health or education, uh, those lobbies aren't as powerful and people, uh, at least on the right, some in the center would cry socialism. Uh, whereas we have socialism for the military industrial complex and capitalism for the rest of us. And why is it then that Democrats go along with this? This is the one thing in this polarized, highly partisan government that we have that they tend to agree on and they give it a blank check. Well, part of it is pork barrel politics. Part of it is a lot of Democrats, especially so-called moderates, buy the argument that China is a military threat. Uh, feel like Ukraine, even though it's being fully supplied by a separate emergency account, that somehow Ukraine justifies jacking up the regular Pentagon budget. Uh, there are people like Bernie Sanders, Rokana, about 140 or so House members voted last year against increasing the Pentagon budget beyond what the uh, Pentagon asked for. But, you know, 140 or 142 out of 435 still is a long climb. And that was just to block the increases, not to reduce the underlying proposals. So uh, there's a long way to go. And I, I think one thing that folks should consider is that this is dysfunctional no matter what you think the defense strategy should be. If you're buying F-35s that are nev never going to be fully ready for combat, aircraft carriers that can be shot out of the water by advanced missiles, uh, ICBMs that are a greater threat uh, because of the risk of accidental nuclear war than they are a protection, uh, 500,000 contractors hired by the Pentagon, many of whom they don't even keep track of what they're doing. Um, even if you were an intelligent hawk, you wouldn't want to spend money on these things. Uh, but that's not how the debate is going at the moment. So how has it gotten to the point where we spend more money and we don't win wars? Has it reached the point where it's not important to win wars? Well, I think the, you know, the lesson of the last 20 years, if you look at Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Libya, all the places where the U.S. has intervened, either with boots on the ground or drones or training programs or backing up the Europeans. Um, they've either been catastrophic failures or uh, just not met their uh, goals that were originally advertised. So one would think that that would create a change in attitude towards pouring this money. Uh, you know, the Brown Cost of War Project says post 9 wars have cost $8 trillion if you include the cost of taking care of the veterans of those wars. Um, I mean, what a colossal waste. But what the Pentagon and the contractors have done is they've just changed the conversation. And they've sort of said, well, yeah, maybe we made some mistakes in those places, but what about China? 
And this started in earnest under Trump, his national defense strategy in 2018. And it was amplified by a congressional commission called the National Defense Strategy Commission, which was composed mostly of people with ties to the weapons contractors. And that commission said, well, you know, the Pentagon's not asking for enough money. We need three to 5% above inflation every year. We're now on target for that, uh, which seemed like a pipe dream uh, back when they said it, and now is a reality. And people like James Inhofe, who's not retiring, like Rogers, who's in line to run the Awesome Services Committee, had been touting this three to 5% number, which was based on an offhand comment by James Mattis in congressional testimony, uh, amplified by this congressional report, and became something of gospel for the Pentagon Hawks, and is rarely challenged uh, by anyone on the call. Uh, and so it's it's kind of been built into the system. Well, I don't understand how you could be, you know, jacking up the defense budget. I mean, they, I know they're making China as the next enemy, but the other enemy, uh, which has been the enemy now for, what, 50, 60 years, the Soviets and now the Russians, talk about a paper target. I mean, the Russian military is so clearly hollowed out by corruption, and I'm wondering actually whether that's going to happen to us if we're buying weapon systems that don't work uh, just because Congress people have factories in their district. And obviously we, we'd have to go a long way before we got to the level of corruption that has hollowed out the Russian military. But still, the fact that Russia has proven to be a paper target, is that resonating at all in the Congress? Are they readjusting their thinking about why we need to spend a lot of money on defense if our supposed enemies are absolutely an exaggeration? Only a handful of members. Um, I think Russia has demonstrated its relative weakness by the way it's conducted the war in Ukraine. Uh, and it's it's lost ground and, and not filled its objectives by the West arming Ukraine, not by NATO sending in troops. So even if you thought this model was the way to go, you don't need more troops in Europe. They're not using troops to fight this war. Um, this notion that Russia is going to march against NATO when they can't defeat a non-NATO member in Ukraine, where they have many times the population and resources, um, where they've got low morale of their troops. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's almost like an autopilot, this notion of Russia as being 10 feet tall. And in fact, it's, it's uh, you know, quite hobbled and not really a threat to a 30-member uh, NATO alliance that is growing with the addition of Sweden and Finland. So that should be kind of a central part of the argument about how much to spend in the military, and, and it's just not there at the moment. Well, why isn't it there, though, Bill? What's wrong with it? I mean, you mentioned uh, Ro Khanna. Is he the only member of Congress that speaks up, or Bernie Sanders? I mean, is that the problem? Uh, I think we need more courage among the members, and they would need to hear more from the public. And I, I think some people just buy the notion that more is better. It's like an insurance policy, when in fact it's more like we're burning the house down. You know, uh, and then um, a lot of Democrats think that smart political play is not to be viewed as soft on defense. Um, it's you know, at bottom, it's not really rational. It's kind of 
emotional, ideological to, to a large degree. Uh, I think a lot of people unfortunately feel that, you know, how much the U.S. spends on the military is kind of the measure of our global power and influence, even though that has been disproven repeatedly um, during the post 9 period. So it, it's really like, how do we dislodge those notions? Uh, and of course, we're in an environment of fear where people who dare to do things like suggest that there may ultimately need to be a diplomatic settlement in Ukraine are accused of being part of a pro-Putin axis, uh, or, you know, those attempts, if not to silence, at least to ridicule them. Um, it's a little bit like the post-911 period where uh, alternative views were, uh, you know, pilloried and, and attempted to be silenced, or even the Cold War. Um, so, so the ability to get this message out is um, being distorted by the uh, political and media environment. So I, I think it's all the more reason to speak out, but it's, um, you know, how is it being received in this climate is the question. Well, just in closing then, William Hartung, is there any possibility of a counter lobby to the defense lobby, since they obviously control Capitol Hill? Is there such a thing or could there be such a thing? I think it would have to start at the grassroots level. Um, there's organizations like Dissenters, which is a youth anti-militarism movement out of Chicago uh, that's new and is organizing on campuses. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign has made this central plank of their of demands. Uh, there's groups like Global Zero, which work on nuclear weapons, but are trying to reach out uh, across the spectrum to groups working on related issues. Some of the environmental groups are working with a, a group called People Over Pentagon, uh, organized by public citizen. There's some conservatives like National Taxpayers Union and uh, R Street uh, that are for reductions. Uh, but you add all those up, and at the moment, there's not enough power there. You really would need uh, kind of a thorough kind of public education program and also a sense among people that um, their actions can make a difference in a government that they view as uh, perhaps corrupt and not, not responsive. And so in some polls, you actually see a majority of people saying we're spending enough or too much on the Pentagon, but it doesn't translate into any movement that uh, curbs members when they go wild, jacking up the Pentagon budget. So I, I think it's probably a medium to long-term uh, project. And in the meantime, it's damage limitation, you know, keeping them from going even higher. They're aiming for a trillion or more just for the Pentagon, not for the total security budget that we talked about before. So I haven't seen anything like this in my lifetime. And, you know, I've been working on this for longer than I'd like to admit. So um, I just think we've got to keep up the fight. But there's no, just like we don't know when the Ukraine war is going to end, we don't know when this buildup is going to end. And we just have to figure out if we can get more people to pay attention to it. Well, William Hartung, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And we've been speaking with William Hartung, who's a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's the author of a number of books, including The Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, and he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, New Spending Bill Squanders Billions on Dysfunctional Weapons Programs. We're going to take a brief station break at the looking at the moment we've arrived at with Putin's last stand in Ukraine and the promise and peril of Russian defeat. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow of the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmich. So nice to be back again. Well, thanks for joining us and talking about Russian defeat, which of course is the opposite of what Putin is talking about in terms of planning a winter offensive and now going to Belarus somewhat had in hand. I think to begin with what happened yesterday, Michael, uh, the fact that he had to go to Belarus indicates a change, doesn't he? Normally has Lukashenko going to Moscow had in hand. That's very true, and this is consistent with the regional pattern in the South Caucasus with Armenia and Azerbaijan, where Russia is less of a arbiter there, and in Central Asia, where various leaders have distanced themselves from Putin, uh, the meeting in, in Minsk and Belarus is consistent with a pattern of, of diminishing Russian regional influence. So if you and I are talking about it, surely people in the power structure in Russia are talking about this. Yes, that's the tightrope that Putin is walking, of course. It's a bit of a black box, the Russian power structure, and we have very little access to it, so it's hard to speculate on what exactly is going on there. But, uh, you know, Putin has plunged his country into a terrible and unwinnable war. Uh, and whether or not people have the courage to oppose Putin and the Kremlin, they have to be aware that everything, every trend line is going in the wrong direction. Uh, and that uh, has to create quite an ominous mood in the halls of the Kremlin. So is there any mechanism to remove him? I mean, what I'm hearing from specialists that I talked to on Russia and the former Soviet Union, the consensus seems to be that as bad as Putin is, there are worse people waiting in the wings. So is there a pragmatic possibility out there as opposed to an ultra-nationalist demagogue even worse than Putin? Well, that's truly hard to say. I mean, I think that there are people in the Kremlin who are not ultra-nationalist demagogues. In fact, you've had a kind of economic team that since the beginning of the war has been quite capable uh, and uh, probably doesn't like the war, but uh, is, is, is you know, capable of efficiency and, and, and reasonable decision-making. And you do have a spectrum of opinion from more moderate figures to more extreme figures. I think the constraint, though, is that it's very hard to imagine anybody coming to power who's not from the military or from the security services. There really aren't political parties or movements that are capable of ousting Putin. So, yes, it doesn't look great uh, in terms of who might replace Putin. Uh, and in that sense, Russia is not just in a bind with the war, they're in a double bind with the, with the whole political structure. So let's go through your article at Foreign Affairs, Michael Kimmage, with Liana Fix, Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat. And you offer up 
three scenarios of what is likely to happen. So let's begin with the first and what you call the least likely scenario that Russia will agree to its defeat by accepting a negotiated settlement on Ukraine's terms. Right. That, you know, on paper and on theory, and certainly for us as observers of Russia from the outside, just seems like the wisest thing to do, that Russia has lost the war in so many ways already, uh, and its objectives were somewhat crazy to begin with. So, again, in theory or on paper, it makes sense for Russia to sue for peace uh, and perhaps to hold on to Crimea or try to get certain concessions from Ukraine, but effectively to yield back all of the territory that they tried to take since the 24th of February, 2022. Now, whether Ukraine would accept those terms is sort of hard to say, but um, that's maybe a reasonable deal from Russia's vantage point. But there's no way that Putin is going to make that deal uh, because it would be a huge blow to his ego. And he would have to accept pretty publicly and pretty tangibly uh, that the war has been completely for naught. Uh, so, you know, that's where he is militarily. It would be a, a wise thing to do for the, for the long term in the scheme of things. Uh, but politically, it's impossible, close to impossible to imagine Putin doing this. At least it's hard this year. Maybe next year or the year after he might get there, but he's not there now. So let's turn to the second scenario of a Russian defeat, which would involve failure amid escalation. And I take it that is the current situation, right? That he's about, or appears to be about to escalate, trying to open a new front in the north. Although there's some possibility, since the Ukrainians have defended the north, which was used in the original attack, the quickest way to get to Kiev is from Belarus. But this time around, the Ukrainians have, have built up substantial defenses. It might Putin may, may actually go after Bakhmut. But either way, I think it's fair to assume that there's going to be a last sort of hurrah, right, from Putin soon in the winter while the ground is still hard for armored vehicles before the spring thaw when it gets mushy? I think the situation may be a little bit bleaker for Russia uh, than what you described. You know, Russia has chronic problems in the short to medium term of manpower and ammunition. They've been struggling for the last couple of weeks, really months, to take a city, the city of Bakhmut uh, in eastern Ukraine, uh, of dubious strategic value to Russia, but they've been trying to do it and they've been able, unable to take that. So if they can't take Bakhmut uh, in eastern Ukraine, the idea that they could mount an assault on the north from the territory of Belarus may be, uh, may be far-fetched. So I think that their means to escalate are quite limited, but uh, you're right that this is what they're trying to pursue and where they've really been focusing, I think, as we all know, is on attacks on Ukraine's critical infrastructure, electricity, water supply, uh, etc. And I don't think that those attacks are going to change public opinion in Ukraine or get Ukraine to surrender, but they're a pretty vicious and terrible uh, uh, reality for Ukraine to live through. Uh, and I think Russia is going to just continue hammering away uh, at those things that make life livable in Ukraine. Uh, and in the wintertime, in the spring, uh, in the in the summer, I mean, it's, it's going to be a huge problem. So, you know, Russia can escalate in that manner. On the battlefield, I don't think that they have many escalation op options but that may change if there's another round of mobilization uh, and if they can get their munitions factories to work. That's sort of an open question, but that would be for maybe eight to nine months from now. Well, it looks like Lukashenko, the Belarus dictator, was able to avoid giving his army over to Putin because he's supplying Putin with artillery shells, 12,000 tons apparently of munitions so far. 
So where else is he getting? Uh, I mean, I've heard he's getting stuff from North Korea. and We know he's getting drones from Iran. It seems like a desperate situation in terms of, and they're using 40-year-old uh, ammunition apparently in the howitzers, which a lot of it, of course, is duds. Well, that's entirely correct, and and it's it's uh, one of the complications that Russia faces is not only have they spent many of their military resources, uh, often to no effect over the summer and and, and in the early fall, but uh, they have to keep resources in reserve in case the conflict becomes a confrontation with NATO. That's not what Russia is seeking, in my view, and it's not what NATO is seeking, but it could still happen. Uh, and so Russia can't just uh, throw everything into Ukraine. They have to, um, you know, they have to keep uh, their country defended, uh, and they are in a, uh, a dismal position in this regard. I think everything that you mentioned is is, is spot on. Trying to get materials from North Korea, uh, getting drones from Iran, and probably smuggling and and uh, you know illegally acquiring. Uh, munitions uh, on other kinds of uh, markets elsewhere, but uh, it's 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 not enough to make a big difference for Russia uh, in the short term. It's probably just enough to keep things uh, keep things going. It's it's not at all where Putin expected to be even six months ago. Not to mention where Putin expected to be at the beginning of this war. And the 25th of February is coming up. That would be one year. So obviously that's going to be significant for Putin. So the final scenario that you have of the, th- of the three, Michael Kimmage, is the war would end in a defeat through regime collapse with the decisive battle taking place not in Ukraine but rather in the halls of the Kremlin or in the streets of Moscow. So elaborate on that, if you will. Well, I think that this has perhaps a medium to high probability of happening over time. Not tomorrow, not you know the next couple of months probably, but... Uh, uh, it's really something to consider uh, on the horizon. I think a failure of this scale in Russia, uh, of, of, of this degree of almost insanity, the invasion itself, the way it's been prosecuted, prior to that, the mismanagement of Russia's military modernization, which was supposed to be one of Putin's signature projects, signature uh, achievements, the way in which the Russian economy is going to be degraded by this, and Russia standing in Europe and other parts of the world, has been much reduced by the by the war. So it is, I think, uh, it has amounted to a strategic catastrophe uh, for Russia. Uh, and as that sinks in, you know, I don't think that there are ways that Putin can change gears. And Russia, of course, is not a democracy, so he can't be voted out of office. That the confrontation will come in some sense uh, when perhaps a handful of elites in the Kremlin unify with protests outside the Kremlin uh, and the very foundations of Putin's power become uh, get shaken uh, and become uh, uncertain. Uh, and so in that sense, this war could lead uh, to revolution or something uh, like revolution that has, of course, happened uh, conspicuously in Russian history once before. This would be in 1917 when catastrophic defeats in the First World War contributed to the outbreak of, uh, of revolution. It might not be quite that spectacular, uh, in the coming months and years, but uh, it's it's really possible. One of the worst things that you can do as an autocrat uh, is to very obviously and very humiliatingly lose a war. That's 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 not really what autocrats are able to do, uh, and that may be um, the way in which Putin has become the author the author of his own demise. But Putin himself, I mean, the mystique of this genius has already been blown up. 
But I'm curious to get your opinion on, on this, Marco, whether or not he's learned anything from the Soviet days, because one of the reasons that Perestroika and Glasnost was launched uh, was the KGB were the only people keeping score, and all the ministries lied to each other about meeting the quotas in their five-year plans, etc., and that still seems to be the case of window dressing, Maskarova, or the Potemkin village, which is such a part of Russian history. Didn't he know that his much vaunted military reforms were being hollowed out by corruption? I, I think apparently he did not, because if he had really known that um, prior to the invasion, I don't think that he would have invaded. He doesn't have the army that he thought he has, but he has become, you know, he's 22 years in power. He's quite an isolated man in some respects, and he is a, a dictator, which is psychologically perilous. So he has become, in that sense, uh, out of touch. The lesson he learned from the collapse of the Soviet Union may not be the lesson that you, Ian, or I learned from the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think the lesson that he learned is that Gorbachev was weak uh, and that Gorbachev, you know, loosened up and he gave people too many freedoms uh, and he let the periphery of the Soviet Union go uh, away from the uh, the capital city. And so what Russia needs is very strong leadership, and what it needs is uh, the capacity to repress uh, its own population. So in that sense, uh, although it's an imperfect analogy, Putin is a leader much more in the Stalinist mold uh, than he is in the in the mold of, uh, of Mikhail Gorbachev. So that's, I think, the lesson that he's learned from the Soviet experience. But the open question is whether that lesson really applies to what's going on in Ukraine, in other words, how long can Putin survive just with uh, repression and with this effort to be a, uh, a strong man? Once again, he's you know sort of damaged his image as a strong man uh, with the war, uh, and you know repression is uh, uh, it's a tool that many dictators use to stay in power for long periods of time, but it has its limits, uh, and Putin may well discover the the, the nature of those limits uh, a bit sooner than we might expect. So one of the things that uh, you mentioned and a lot of people fear is in desperation he would turn to nuclear weapons would make no sense whatsoever, but he keeps bringing them up, you know, dirty bombs. And the latest stuff that he's been saying is quite alarming about Russia no longer being restrained in terms of a first-use policy based upon this paranoid idea that the West or the, the United States is developing a first strike, counterforce strike, to knock out all of the Soviet offensive nuclear weapons in the first strike, which would, of course, be mean hundreds of weapons and catastrophic amount of damage to the planet itself. But nevertheless, he appears to believe this notion that Americans are out to do a disarming first strike. So they won't have, the Russians wouldn't have a second strike capability. And this stuff was gamed out during the Cold War. But, you know, as I mentioned, it would involve hundreds and hundreds of nuclear weapons being used in a catastrophic way. So it's sort of hard to understand why he believes in it. But apparently he's not the only one. Uh, the military over there apparently also feel vulnerable. And it may not be a first strike in the Cold War context of a nuclear weapon being used to knock out a nuclear weapon in its silo before it's launched. There may be other means that the Russians think that uh, the West could neutralize their nuclear arsenal. But just venturing into this kind of territory, I find terrifying. Yes, no, it is terrifying. I mean, I think that it's very hard to know what 
is in Putin's mind when it comes to these questions. A lot of his statements are bluster. He sort of threatened nuclear use at various points in the conflict in Ukraine and, and, and not followed through. So he wants to keep us on our toes and he wants to keep us guessing and he wants to instill fear. That's uh, very important on his end because that's one of the tools that he still has. And he wants to also create fissures and divisions within Europe. But, you know, the Poles are going to be more focused on Ukraine, whereas in Germany, people may have more nuclear concerns. And so he will do what he can to, uh, to exploit these, uh, these, these dynamics. But I think that looking at the situation historically, I think it's important to note, this is why it is terrifying, that we are, in a sense, where we have never been uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons. That even Khrushchev with the Cuban Missile Crisis, he had a Politburo around him. Uh, You know, he was willing to back down. He was willing to negotiate. He was willing to do real diplomacy in 1962. And that's what got us out of the the crisis. With Putin, I wouldn't take any of that for granted. I think he's, you know, quite a bit more isolated. Uh, and he's in a desperate position. You know, we have the spectacle at the moment of Russia, a nuclear power, that is losing a conventional war. Uh, and, you know, that has happened before. The U.S. lost a war in Vietnam, it lost the war in Afghanistan, and it didn't resort to nuclear weapons. So it's not axiomatic that the conflict will go nuclear, but it's scary. The combination of Putin's psyche, his capacity for risk, and the way in which he's driving himself toward defeat uh, none of that is good news, and none of that is good news when we know that Putin has access to the nuclear trigger, to the nuclear button. So it's it's an unprecedented situation, this one with nuclear weapons, uh, and it's deeply, deeply unsettling. Well, on that grim note, Michael, um, I have to leave you. I thank you for joining us. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure, Ian. We'll, we'll try to find a more positive note next time. I hope so. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmich, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. And from 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
one more light goes out. 